Well, this morning, I have the privilege and opportunity of introducing our speaker this morning. You know him as the man who wrote the gospel primer that all of you received at Christmas time. You, uh, his name is Milton Vincent. He's a graduate of Bob Jones University uh, with a bachelor's degree. He has a master's of divinity from the master's seminary. And he formerly taught English grammar and served as a faculty associate of Old Testament language and literature at the Master's Seminary in Sun Valley. That means he taught Hebrew. Uh, he's presently in his 15th year as pastor teacher of Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church in Riverside. And he and his wife, Donna, they have four children, ages 17 to nine. And typical of a pastor, he has alliterated, alliterated their names is uh, Brooke, Brendan, Benjamin and Brianna. Is that right? Uh, he also um, is a Steelers fan since 1973. I think that's important for you to know. <laughs> I myself am from Pittsburgh. So uh, he's also a USC Trojans fan, and he is affectionately known as Mr. Triple Bogey, right? He uh, has taken up golf and uh, says he is uh, a subpar or above par player. Is that what it said on your website? He is, he is an above-par player, meaning he's uh, usually three shots over. So, uh, anyway, we are delighted to have him here to open the word to us this morning. Um, I would encourage you to listen uh, intently and, uh, and let the word be exalted in your hearts. Uh, Milton, would you come up and open the word to us, my brother? Well, thank you, Vincent. I like your name, by the way. <laughs> well, it is a special uh, thrill to be here uh, with you and worshiping with you. Wonderful uh, songs of worship to set the tone for what we're going to be speaking about this morning. And the choir, just an excellent job of ministering to us. I was ready to pop out of my seat um, as you celebrated the grace of God in the song that you sang uh, this morning. It is a special thrill to be here um, uh, with you today, partly just because of the relationship that has grown between your pastor, uh, Dave Forsyth, along with your staff and myself and our staff at Cornerstone. Uh, one of the great delights of my ministry over the last couple of years has been uh, the lunches that we have had on a regular basis together as our staff has met with some other pastoral staff at other churches over the last couple of years periodically uh, throughout the year. And uh, we do a lot of picking of each other's brains. And uh, we have learned much from our interactions with uh, with your pastoral staff. And the truth is, um, uh, the way we do church at Cornerstone uh, bears the imprint of the influence of, of this church. I don't know if you're aware of that. The way that we do certain things in our missions program, all we've done is copied you and what you are, are doing here. So your influence upon our church is profound, and I, I hope that that will uh, continue as our relationship continues to be strengthened in the months and the years to come. Uh, as we have drawn closer together as a pastoral staff and realized how much we have to learn uh, from one another, we have begun to dream together of uh, possibly working together on some joint ventures with regard to missions and some other uh, matters as well. And as a part of the process of being able to achieve that ultimate uh, vision that we're dreaming about, we thought it would be good for 
us to do a pulpit switch, which I personally have never done before. And um, for me to be able to meet you and for our congregation to be able to meet your pastor and for him to be able to meet them. And we hope this is just one of uh, many steps to come as our churches seek to work more closely together as one body accomplishing God's kingdom work here in Southern California. So it's a blessing to be here uh, with you today for all of those reasons. And then also it's a special thrill always to be able to open up God's word together. And I'd like for us to do that uh, this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, there is an insert that is in your bulletin that you are welcome to uh, use to follow along. And I left a few blanks uh, on the insert just to keep you awake and give you something to do. Deuteronomy chapter 9, I want to speak to you this morning on a subject that I, for the sake of my own spiritual sanity, have had to give a lot of thought and attention to in my own personal life, and that is the subject of rightly remembering your past sins. Rightly remembering your past uh, sins. And I want to begin this morning with uh, two questions. And the first of these questions is uh, kind of a no-brainer, but I want you to at least go through the exercise of raising your hand and answering it. And then the second question requires a little bit more, uh, more thought on your part. But here's the two questions and raise your hand as you answer them. Question number one, how many of you in this room would be so bold as to admit publicly to the fact that you have committed sins in your past? Raise your hand. Okay, even your pastoral staff have their hands. um, I've witnessed some of those sins, by the way. Uh, No, I haven't. Um, But here's the second question. Question And this gets us more to the heart of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And that is, we know theologically, uh, folks, that all sins are equally bad in one sense before God, that even one white lie that we might tell makes us worthy of infinite judgment in the lake of fire. We know that theologically. Nonetheless, how many of you would say that there are particular sins that you've committed in your past? That when you remember those particular sins, the devil uses those memories to discourage you, to condemn you, and to take away from you the joy of your salvation. How many of you would say that happens to you? My hand is up. Okay, it looks like most of us in this room have our hands up. In our congregation at Cornerstone, I have some members that have told me that every single day, They have sins that they have committed in their past, maybe before they were saved or since they were saved, that come back to haunt them. And every day they have to apply the gospel to those memories. I'll never forget um, about a year and a half ago, I was awakened on a Friday morning, uh, awakened to a sensation that the bed on which I was lying was shaking. And I lay there perfectly still because my first thought is there's an earthquake. And I think when there's an earthquake, you're supposed to immediately get up and take action. But what I do is just lay there to see how bad it's going to get. <laughs> and which I think is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. But but I awaken that morning with the sensation that 
there's an earthquake happening, a mild one. And I lay there perfectly still and I could feel the bed. There was a sensation of the bed shaking. And as I lay there, uh, just evaluating that, I began to realize in a matter of a few seconds that no, there is no earthquake. Milton, your heart is pounding. My heart was racing in my chest. And for some reason, right at that moment as my heart was racing, sin after sin after sin began to flood into my mind. And I felt overwhelmed with guilt. And I sat up in bed and I grabbed a, a, a notebook and a pen and I began to make a list of the sins that were coming to my mind. And eventually my wife was awakened by the scribbling of the pen and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm making a list of my sins. And in that moment as I sat there, feeling the weight of my sins, I really needed what I'm going to share with you this morning. As I began to rehearse the Gospel and preach the Gospel to myself, I experienced great comfort, great solace, and strengthening in the truths of the Gospel. It would be nice if once we came to know the Lord, if all sins that we ever committed in our past were utterly forgotten. Wouldn't that be great? But nonetheless, that does not happen. The Apostle John says in 1 John, if our heart condemns us, and then he tells us what to do when that happens, but I'm interested more in the fact that John seems to be alluding to the fact that there are times in every believer's life, including John's own life, when our heart does condemn us. And usually our heart condemns us when we are remembering past sins that we have committed. And so what do we do with those memories of past sins? That's the question that I want to answer this morning. I want to give you three instructions, as you can see on your handout, um, with regard to what to do when those memories of past sins do assail the conscience. Before we do that, let me fairly quickly, though, uh, address by way of um, just introductory material uh, the fact that there are actually four camps of people on this particular issue of remembering uh, your past sins. Christians are all over the place on this issue. And let's try to look at these four camps. My goal is to actually, if you're in camp one, two or three, my goal is to persuade you out of those camps and into camp number four. All right. Just so you know what my agenda here is. Camp number one uh, of people with regard to remembering one's past sins are those who remember their past sins and feel condemned by the memory of those past sins. There are Christians that they have front and center in their minds the sins that they have committed in their past and uh, they feel condemned by the memory of those sins. And so they walk in that spirit of condemnation and defeat and discouragement and they look at gospel realities and they say, yeah, the gospel's true, but it's not quite so true for me because of what I have done that is so much worse, in my opinion, than what other people may have done. I remember about a decade ago talking to a woman from Corona that had been attending our church. And before she came to know the Lord, she lived an immoral lifestyle to such a degree that she had conceived three children and had aborted all three of them. Well, God saved her. She experienced the forgiveness of her sins and uh, she ended up meeting a godly man. They got married and 
They tried their best to have children and could never have children in the first several years of their marriage. And the devil used that fact to haunt her over her past sins. She battled daily with the taunting of the evil one for the sins that she had committed. She struggled daily to truly believe that she had indeed been forgiven for those three abortions that she had committed. But she also went on to share how the Lord had brought her to a place of freedom from that guilt. Uh, And what had happened, I'll just throw this in and share this with you. After years of trying to have children, the Lord eventually opened her womb and she gave birth to triplets. (laughs) I am not making that up. And that was a very tangible way in which the Lord said to her, I am entrusting these three lives to you. You are forgiven. But nonetheless, this woman struggled for years with condemnation over the sins that she had committed in her past. I remember talking to a man in our church who had known the Lord for nine years. And I asked him on one occasion, I said, are you are you walking with Jesus? Are you enjoying intimacy with Jesus? And his immediate reply was, oh, Milton. You don't know the things I did before I was saved. I don't deserve intimacy with Jesus. So what had happened was his memory of past sins, even before he was saved, would cause him to look at gospel blessings that were available to him and he would not take them because he felt condemned over his past sins. And so that's one camp of people. If you're in that camp, I hope that by the time we're done, you'll jump out of that camp and get into camp number four. There's a second camp of people, and I think all of us on occasion find ourselves in this camp, and that is those individuals who too easily forget their past sins, who too easily forget their past sins. I tend to very easily forget my past sins when I am preoccupied with the sins of other people and what they have done against me. And so sometimes in those moments, we too easily forget our past sins and the grace that we required from God. Some Christians too easily forget their past sins because of a faulty understanding of Scripture. They think that they're supposed to forget their past sins. Uh, I've read writers who suggest that and others too easily forget their past sins because they have a shallow view of sin. Sin is not that big of a deal. And so it's an easy thing for them to forget. And so that's a second camp of people. And it's a camp Folks that you don't want to be in. In fact, let me just go ahead and say this to you. People who too easily forget their own past sins usually have a whole lot of trouble forgetting the sins of other people. They have a whole lot of trouble forgetting the sins of other people. There's a third camp moving on of individuals with regard to this issue of remembering your past sins, and that is those who are too afraid to remember their past sins. Uh, closely akin to the first camp. But these people, man, they don't let their minds go back to these past sins because the pain, the guilt, the remorse, the shame is so great that they don't ever want to go back. And so they try to run ahead of those memories of their past sins and try to do good deeds and try to distract themselves. When their mind does go back to those past sins, they don't linger there at all. They move on to something else because they cannot bear to remember or think about their past sins. I've had... Christians tell me this, that I don't I don't want to go back in my mind to those sins. I don't want to remember them. I do everything I can to forget these sins. Well, there's a fourth camp of people, and this is the camp that I want to commend to you, and that is those who do remember their past sins 
And every time they remember their past sins, they always end up celebrating God's grace. They remember their past sins and always end up celebrating the wonderful and the amazing grace of God about which we sang uh, this morning. In fact, such people actually began to find a certain measure of blessing and enjoyment in deliberately remembering their past sins because their memory of past sins serves to enrich their appreciation of the magnitude of the grace of God. And so this is the camp that I'm going to come into you and seek to influence you into. And here's the big idea of the message this morning. I want to give you three instructions to help you in your own personal life to turn your memory of your past sins literally into fuel for a victorious life in grace uh, to help you actually turn your memory of past sins from a negative uh, into a positive to help you actually take those memories and let those memories serve as fuel that just begins to energize you into a wonderful life of worship and celebration of the grace of God. The first instruction is this out of the three that I want to give you, and that is realize that it is biblical and healthy for you to remember your past sins. We have to deal with this because not all Christians are convinced of this. Realize that it is biblical and healthy for you to actually remember your past sins. Now, some of you may say, well, what about passages like Hebrews 10, 17, where God says and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. God's saying he doesn't remember our past sins. So why should we remember our past sins? Well, when you look at a passage like Hebrews 10, 17, I would encourage you to ask yourself this question. Who's doing the talking here? God is the one doing the speaking and God is saying that he won't remember our past sins. And by the way, what he's really saying is I won't remember them against you any longer. He's not saying I will remove them from my omniscience to where I don't even know that those things were done. No, what he's saying is I will not remember them against you. I would encourage you to read from Genesis to Revelation, search the scriptures on your own and try to find one command anywhere where God instructs his people to forget their past sins. You just won't find an instruction like that anywhere. In fact, what you will find is the opposite. The reason I had you turn to Deuteronomy chapter nine is because God actually instructs his people to remember their past sins. The Israelites have sinned against God in so many ways in the wilderness and God has been faithful to them. And now they stand um, you know, just about to go into the promised land and God is giving them instructions on how to live once they enter into the promised land. And God gives a very interesting instruction to his people in Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse seven. You see, God knows the hearts of the Israelites. He knows that once they get into the land. That some of them are going to look around, take in these blessings and say, I know why we're here. We're here because we deserve to be here. We are more godly than the other nations. It is because of my righteousness that I am enjoying these blessings of this land. And look how God counters this. Look at verse four. He says, do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Look at verse five. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. Look at verse six. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. 
for you are a stubborn people. And now look at verse 7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. God is saying when you get into the land of promise and you're out of the wilderness, remember and don't let yourself forget your sins when you were in the wilderness. Now, why does God want them to remember? So they can walk around and mope all day. I don't deserve these blessings. I'm not going to eat these luscious grapes in this land because we don't deserve them. No. God wants them to remember so that as they do enjoy the bounty of the land of promise, they would know it's all grace. It's all a grace from God. And God is saying, as you enjoy the fruit and the blessings of the land of promise, don't let yourself forget your past sins. Remember and don't forget. I would also submit to you not just a command like this that's in Deuteronomy chapter 9, but also the example of the Apostle Paul that I think is worth our following. Paul was saved somewhere around A.D. 33. And um, what were Paul's sin problems before he was saved? Well, murder, uh, persecuting the church of God, uh, blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to force other people to blaspheme. Paul viewed his sins as like the worst sins that had ever been committed. He was the chief of sinners, as we read earlier in our service. But nonetheless, God saved the Apostle Paul. His sins were forgiven. And then Paul began to walk in grace. And yet, amazingly, as we read Paul throughout his life and ministry, he never let himself forget about his life before he was saved. He never let himself forget about his past sins. We see that his memory of past sins is factoring in to his thinking in a variety of areas. In fact, 17 years after Paul's sins were forgiven in Galatians 1.13, Paul says to the Galatian believers, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. His memory of his past sins is still very vivid. 22 years after Paul had come to know God's forgiving grace, 22 years later, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles and not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is saying, you know what? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's hard for me to believe. Actually, of all the apostles, I'm the least of them and I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because of my past sins. I persecuted the church of God. I cannot believe my good fortune in being an apostle of Jesus when I contemplate my past sins. Twenty-five years after Paul had his sins forgiven and came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he was speaking to the Jews of Jerusalem. And listen to what he says in Acts 22. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Obviously, Paul's memory of his past sins is still very vivid in his mind 25 years later. In Acts 22, verse 19, Paul is actually praying to the Lord Jesus. And his past sins factor into what he is saying to Jesus 
He says in Acts 22, 19, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. You think Paul ever woke up in a cold sweat with his heart racing? Over his participation in the death of Stephen? You think Paul ever preached at churches where he looks out in the audience and there's a widow there because Paul was responsible for the death of that woman's husband? Or there are children who lost a father or mother because of something Paul did before he was saved? Paul had his moments, no doubt, when he felt condemned in his heart over his past sins. His memory of them is still very vivid. And he's even rehearsing them as he's speaking to Jesus. 26 years after he was saved, Paul is speaking to King Agrippa. And he says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged against them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Again, his memory is very vivid. He's not only remembering his past sins, but he's talking about them. And then 31 years after Paul's sins were forgiven and he became a child of God, he's writing to Timothy and he's contemplating the fact that he is an apostle, having received a ministry from God. And he says in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, putting me into ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Paul sets a great example for us of a man who walked in God's grace, who knew he was forgiven, and yet a man who did not allow himself ever to forget his past sins. And so my first instruction, if you want to turn your memory of past sins into fuel for a victorious life in grace, realize, number one, that it is biblical and healthy for you to remember your past sins. But folks, you should go beyond just remembering your past sins. Instruction number two, when remember, remembering your past sins, make sure you remember them for what they really were. There's a wrong way to remember your past sins. When you do remember your past sins, make sure you remember them for what they really were. Uh, see, some people remember their past sins and they remember every salacious detail of it. Uh, and uh, so much so that they stumble themselves and can stumble other people as they speak about them. God wants us to remember our past sins, but he wants us to remember them for what they really were. In fact, let me give you three descriptions, uh, as you see on your handout, that you need to make sure that when you do remember your past sins, you remember them as being these three things. Number one, as destructive, destructive. And ultimately undesirable. When you're remembering your past sins, rem remember them for the destructive and ultimately undesirable things that they really uh, were. Here's a mistake that we make sometimes in our lives. This has happened to me where you're in the middle of sin and uh, that you've gotten yourself into and then you realize, man, 
this really stinks and the guilt and the remorse and the alienation from God and and the brokenness in my life. I don't want this anymore. God, forgive me of my sins and I want to get right with you and start walking with you again. And so we start walking with the Lord in victory and in freedom. And then sometime later, we start remembering our past sins. We forget what really stunk about the sins. We forget the alienation and the guilt, the negative aspects of the sin. Our memory of those past sins gets airbrushed somehow. And we only remember the details of those sins that are desirable. And so we're seduced back into those sins, and then we get back in the middle of them, and we're like, oh, now I remember what really stunk about this. I don't want to be here. But we got suckered right back into those sins. Because when we remembered them, we did not remember them for what they really were. Destructive and ultimately undesirable. David sets a great example for us of a man who did remember his past sins and he remembered them for what they really were. In Psalm 32, David, you guys know the story, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered Bathsheba's husband and had lived for months in self-deception, hypocrisy and deceiving of others. And Nathan, the prophet, confronted him. David repented of his sin. We have his prayer of repentance and confession in Psalm 51. But then at some point after Psalm 51, David is walking in grace and he's savoring the grace and the forgiveness of God. And he begins Psalm 32 by saying, you know, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. He's like, it is so awesome to be walking in grace and in forgiveness. But then he does something interesting. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he starts journaling. He goes back in his mind to his season of sin. And he chronicles what it was really like so that he never forgets. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He's making a journal entry, as it were, saying, I I remember that season of sin. And I remember it for what it was. I was groaning. My body even physically was wasting away. The hand of God was heavy upon me. My vitality was being drained away. And looking back, I can see it in that way. And you know what? I am sure that If there were moments later in David's life where he was tempted to go back to adultery, either in action or in his heart and mind, that he pulled out this scroll of Psalm 32 and he read this journal entry and said, that's what it was like, and I'm not going back. He was careful to remember his sin for what it really was, destructive and ultimately undesirable. Moving on, for the sake of time, there's a second thing we need to remember about our sins. And that is that our sins make us wrath-deserving. Our sins are wrath-deserving. Because of the sins that we've committed, we need to not only remember our past sins, but remember the fact that our past sins render us actually worthy, apart from Christ, of the wrath of Almighty God. We should be daily mindful of the fact that we deserve the wrath of God. In fact, in my own life, one of the disciplines that I've, I've grown to really find pleasure in 
and practicing, and this might seem sick to some of you, um, and that is when I get up in the morning before my feet touch the floor to say to myself, I deserve to be in the lake of fire right now. I deserve hell. And I found if I begin my train of thought with that, the thoughts that emerge from that reality are blessed thoughts. I then think, I deserve to be in hell and outer darkness, and, and yet I'm here. I awaken to a new day. I see the sun is coming up. I cannot believe my good fortune. I get to live yet another day on God's good earth. Every blessing, the large ones and even the small ones, are cause for great gratitude, an explosion of gratitude, because I deserve hell, and yet I get this. I get this glass of water. Uh, I'm driving in my car. It's like I deserve hell, and yet I get to drive in this 98 Camry. And everything's working fine. And I'm, I'm being serious, guys. Just everything becomes a blessing. And even when trials and hardships come that shatter my heart and leave me just careening and wondering what is going on, I can still say to myself, as difficult as this circumstance is, it sure beats the lake of fire. It sure beats the hell that I deserve. And I also know because of the gospel truth that God is through these trials doing something good in me. And I don't deserve that because I should be suffering in the lake of fire. We need to look at our sins, remember them for what they really are, and that is destructive, ultimately undesirable, and also wrath-deserving. And then also a third thing that we need to remember about our past sins when we do remember them is that our past sins are self-exposing. Our past sins are self-exposing. Our past sins and even our present sins reveal shattering truths about our wretched sinfulness apart from Jesus. As David in Psalm 51.5 is contemplating his past sin of adultery and murder and he's writing his prayer of confession and repentance, something dawns on him as he's writing. In Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, and by the way, often in Scripture, when in a passage like this, the writer says, Behold, Often what's happening is he's having an aha moment. Something's dawning on him as he writes and it startles him. And as David is confessing his acts of sin, he stops and says, Behold, I was born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I've always wanted to put this verse on a Hallmark card and give it to my mother for Mother's Day. but have not had the nerve to do so. <laughs> but what David is realizing is, you know what? These sins that I committed, this wasn't David on an off day when I wasn't being myself. This was David being David. I did these things because this is who I am apart from God's mercy and grace in my life. My sins reveal the truth about my sinfulness. Go to Luke 18, verse 13. You know the story of the two men that go to the temple to pray. One is the Pharisee who's patting himself on his back as he prays. And then there's the tax collector who's so broken over his past sins, he cannot even look up into heaven and he's beating his breast and all he can get out is God be merciful to me, the sinner. 
Literally in the Greek text, the sinner. I'm not just a sinner. I'm not just one of many sinners. God, when I look at my sins, I am the sinner. I am the worst sinner that I know. And you need look no further than me to have all of the explanation for why I have done what I have done and the sins throughout my life. I am the sinner. That is an amazing way to word one's confession of sin. I have four children and I have to confess that as our children have grown up, I have witnessed and stepped in on many fights between my children. And on many occasions I have stepped in, I've broken up the fights, sat them down, tried to calm them down, and I've said, what's happened here? Who started this? And what's the typical reply? The finger goes up and points to the other person. I have never had it happen that I have sat my children down after fighting and said, what happened here? Who's to blame? I've never had it happen that one of my children said to me, Dad, upon careful reflection, (laughs) I am the sinner here. You need look no further than me to know why this has happened. The tax collector looked at all of his sins and says, God, I am the sinner. My sins reveal a shattering truth about me. And that is that I am the sinner. Our confessions need to be worded with a similar sentiment. We do need to remember our past sins, but when we remember them, we remember them for what they are. They're destructive, ultimately undesirable, wrath-deserving, and self-exposing. But guys, moving to the last instruction, if you want to turn your memory of past sins into fuel for a victorious life and the grace of God, Here's what you need to do. When remembering your past sins, make sure you surround your memory of them with God's grace. Make sure you surround your memory of them with God's grace. Never, ever, ever remember your past sins without running to the cross and contemplating the grace of God. In fact, let your memory of your past sins only serve to enrich your appreciation of the grace of God. There are times in my life where I will... I will deliberately, verbally, out loud before God, state the sins that I've committed that are the worst things that I've ever done. I I would shrink in shame if I were to say all these things out loud to you. But before God, to state the worst things that I've ever done. And then say, but you know what, God? As mountainous as my sins are, your grace is far more mountainous. Your grace is greater. And as I contemplate the magnitude of my past sins, it makes me only appreciate the magnitude and the amazing nature of your wonderful grace. There are times where I will, I will struggle. My daily battle is to actually believe that the gospel is true for me. I can stand in front of my congregation and easily preach it to other people. I easily believe it's true for everyone I preach to. But I know my heart and I know that I'm the worst sinner that I know. And it is daily a battle to believe that the gospel is true for me. If I win that battle, I win every other battle. A thousand giants are slain in that one victory. If I don't win that battle, um, 
you don't want to see the non-gospel version of Milton. But when I win that battle, what an amazing difference it makes. But there are times where I, I actually struggle. Is the gospel really true for me, given my sinfulness? And sometimes when I'm feeling that way, I do an exercise with the Lord. I come into His presence and I say, God, given my sinfulness, it doesn't make sense. Why would you choose to save me? And then I imagine God saying to me, Milton, I chose to save you because you make my grace look really good. And I usually reply by laughing and saying, I get that. That makes perfect sense to me. If you look at when Paul often talks about past sins, not only in his life, but in the lives of believers, you see how he always goes from sin to grace and sandwiches his talk of sin in the grace of God. Look in Ephesians 1, verse 6 on your handout. He says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graced on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Yes, sin is in that passage, but it is sandwiched in between Paul's celebration of the grace of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the Greek word for thank has the word grace inside of it. Did you know that? It's, it's the word eucharisteo. It's the word charis, which means grace, with the prefix eu, which means good. All right. And that's why sometimes when we're praying before a meal, someone will say who's going to say grace. The origins of that kind of talk go back to the fact that the Greek word for giving thanks has the word grace in it. When we thank God biblically, what we're doing is we're looking at what he's done for us and we pronounce it to be good and we pronounce it to be an undeserved grace. And so Paul says, I say good grace to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into ministry, even though he's like, man, you know, 31 years later, I'm contemplating this ministry that I have. And I'm all the more thankful that God would give this to me when I consider my past, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul saying, I am the worst sinner that I know. By the way, this is present tense. He's not just looking at his past sins. Even his present sins convince him that he is the worst sinner in the world and in history. And yet, verse 16, look at what he says. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. Paul saying, I figured this out. I've wondered, why would God save me, the worst sinner of all? And what I figured out is for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his utter patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, we should not look at this passage and say, OK, well, that's inspired scripture. Paul says he's the worst sinner that ever lived. So I guess he is the worst sinner that ever lived. Now, what we need to do is say this is inspired scripture. Paul is saying he's the worst sinner that ever lived. I should follow his example and say that I am the worst sinner 
that ever lived. I am the chief of sinners. You know why we say that? Because we know ourselves better than we know the sins of anybody else. You should be the worst sinner that you know. And yet, when we contemplate that reality, we then move from there to say, but for this reason, I've been given grace. So that I can go to other people, like Paul did, and say, you know what? If God could save me and give me grace in spite of all I've done, God can save you. And that's my message. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle. Some would have sat Paul down and said, you need some therapy, brother. you got a low self-esteem, man. Quit talking about all of this. Believe in yourself. And Paul would say, please don't deliver me from this. I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, here's what's so wonderful. Look at this, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more abundantly than all of the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace, grace, grace. Paul was not the kind of guy who walked around saying, yeah, God's given me this ministry, but I don't deserve it, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to accept this ministry. Lord, you got the wrong guy. I don't deserve it. Paul's attitude was, you know what? God's offering me this. I look at my past sins and know that I don't deserve it. That makes me all the more impressed with God's grace. I don't deserve this grace of this ministry God's giving to me. But you know what? I'm going to take it. Paul knew he didn't deserve to be an apostle. But he took a stand and said, I am an apostle. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace in my life has not proved vain. I look at my ministry. I've done a lot throughout my years of ministry. And yet it wasn't me. It was God's grace. Folks, every day in your Christian life, God is offering you blessings and privileges and opportunities, none of which you deserve. Get over it. We don't deserve any of it. But you need to take what you don't deserve and say, I don't deserve this but I'm going to take it. I don't deserve intimacy with Jesus. I don't deserve ministry. I don't deserve this ministry opportunity that God has given to me. I don't deserve these blessings. I don't deserve to come into God's presence to pray because of what I did just earlier today and something I said or something that I did. No, God is always offering to you, holding out to you blessings and privileges that are in the Gospel that you don't deserve and God wants you to get used to taking and seizing upon what you don't deserve and saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace is not going to prove vain in my life. But I'm going to labor and whatever God does in me and through me, I'll make sure everyone knows that it's His grace that did it. We're out of time. I was going to read this quote on the back of your insert uh, to you, uh, but we won't take the time to do that. But I would encourage you to take the time to read this. This is Martin Luther giving instruction on what you need to do in those moments where your memory of past sins assails your conscience. And basically, what he's teaching you how to do is preach the gospel to yourself. And when you read it, you'll understand what I'm saying, how to preach the gospel to Satan. When he's coming at you and condemning you, here's the kind of gospel stuff that you need to say wherein you actually experience comfort 
and encouragement. You take your memory of past sins rather than being beaten down. You go from there to the grace of God and you end up encouraged and comforted in the grace of God. And I want to commend this to you this morning. The practice of biblically remembering your past sins in a way that makes you all the more amazed with the amazing grace of God. I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning. If you're here today and you've never experienced the forgiveness of your sins through Christ, I, I would encourage you right where you're seated to, to know that God is a God who came for sinners. Your sin does not disqualify you from Jesus. It's the very thing that qualifies you most for Him. Sinners are the only ones He came for. Sinners are the only ones that Jesus died for. And if you're a sinner, if you're the worst sinner in this room, then you're the most qualified person to take this offer of salvation. If you're a believer, my heart's desire for you is that you would walk in this grace, relish this grace, realize that God chose to save you because you make His grace look really good. Accept that biblical logic and walk in grace. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are sinners who deserve right now as I speak to be in outer darkness, in such darkness that we cannot even see our hand in front of our face. We deserve to be writhing in agony and torment we deserve to be pummeled in our conscience for all of eternity for the sins that we have committed against an infinitely righteous and holy God. We have broken the spirit and the letter of every one of your Ten Commandments. And yet, you, Lord, looking for a way to show the greatness of your grace, sent your Son Jesus into the world to die on the cross, taking on Himself the judgment we deserve for our sins and then offering to us a salvation that is the opposite of what we deserve. And Lord, we, we just say to you this morning, we take it. We will take this. And not try to earn it in any way. It is so far beyond what we could earn. We receive it. We thank you for it. We know that moments await us, Lord, this coming week and beyond when our hearts will condemn us when we remember our past sins and failings in those moments, help us to practice what we've learned today and end up worshiping you all the more passionately for this great love and great grace that you have bestowed upon us. You have done all of this for us to the praise of the glory of your grace. And may we champion that grace, Lord. For your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people say, Amen.